You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. G'day, welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number one, two, one, two. I'm actually positioned a little bit high here for my microphone, so it's sort of <laughs> running through my nostrils basically. I am Rob Jan. And Megan McHugh. And today we are calling our show Hero G. Our podcast title is William Podman. <laughs> so, uh, actually, it's a little bit sad because we're talking about um, the late great William Goldman today uh, as part of the uh, the show. Now, I need to um, get. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Liam Burke at ACME online, and we will talk to him about the uh, ac- upcoming um, ACME uh, superhero conference, and we'll do that momentarily. But um, first, since all the music today is going to be informed by the uh, particular passing of William Goldman and, and also um, the great director, Nicholas. Uh, we will play you a track called The Man Who Fell to Earth, which will, I guess, uh, fill in for our Bowie track for today. And this is by John Phillips, and it's actually from The Man Who Fell to Earth original motion picture soundtrack. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, stacking Z's on Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. There we go. Let's see uh, the track there, which is, um, well, it's kind of Bowie-related. It's from The Man Who Fell to Earth, and that's the name of the title. Eponymous track from the soundtrack album. John Phillips, I think, is uh, the composer of that. Yes, indeed. All right, now we are going to talk to Dr. Liam Burke from ACME. That's A-C-M-I. G'day, Liam. Hey, how are you doing? Well, I'm at Swinburne University, but we are working very closely with ACME on a number of interesting events. Oh, that's right. You are the Cinema and Screens Studio Studies Coordinator and Senior Lecturer and the Faculty of Health, Arts and Design at Swinburne. Yes, exactly. That's me. So we've got a free day conference coming up. Absolutely. It's a three-day conference, but don't let the term conference scare people off. It's a event to help launch a number of things we're doing at ACME. So it's called Superheroes Beyond, and the idea with this uh, conference is to look beyond the obvious or traditional examples of superheroes. Sometimes when we think of superheroes, we think of, you know, white American dudes in the city in comic books. And we thought, let's think about superheroes around the world, superheroes with secret identities that don't necessarily conform to type. And with that idea in mind, we've invited some key international guests, including Trina Robbins, who is the first woman ever to draw Wonder Woman. She was part of the underground comic book scene in the late 1960s and early 1970s. She's 
so cool. Joni Mitchell wrote a song about her, Ladies <laughs> of the Canyon. And she, um, and really, she was kind of the key figure, the mother, really, of uh, underground comics, but really women's comics. She edited the anthology Women's Comics, which ran for 20 years and became the first avenue for a lot of female creators to get their work out there, really fought against the misogyny of particularly the underground comic book scene, of the likes of Robert Crumb and others. And later in her life, she became what she describes as a her story, in that she kind of uh, discovered the kind of forgotten histories of key female comic book characters and also their creators. You also I, have uh, Sheena C. Howard, who's the first woman of colour to win an Eisner Award. Exactly. So the Eisner, for those who don't know, is like the Oscar of comic books. They give them out every year at the San Diego Comic Con. And Sheena's both a comic book creator and an academic. She won the Eisner for her book, The Encyclopedia of Black Comics. And she's also a writer of a book called Superb, which is a comic, which not only has a person of color in the lead role, but also has a superhero who has Down syndrome. So again, it's just about trying to reposition our thinking on superheroes and have a kind of a more open and perhaps a more diverse approach to who gets to be the hero. I'm, I'm right on that. I uh, wrote an article in the last Trip magazine about diversity in comic book heroes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's something that's gaining a lot of attention at the moment. I mean, traditionally, particularly in perhaps the movies, when we think of the diversity, we think of the MCU, we think it's a lot of white guys named Chris. But uh, the comics have become increasingly diverse. I think that's beginning to flow through into the movies. And it's not just about diversity in terms of social issues, but it's also just about thinking about comic book characters and superheroes around the world. So we have a panel called Australian Comics and their creators, which have some of the leading figures of the Australian comic book scene, like Tom Taylor, the Melbourne-based writer who now writes for Marvel and DC on titles like Spider-Man and X-Men Red and Injustice. Nicholas Scott, the artist who's worked on Wonder Woman and now has her own book called Black Magic. Uh, Wolfgang Bilsom from uh, Western Australia, who's the publisher of Gestalt Comics. They published the Clever Man comic book and a whole range of uh, kind of local creators to kind of bring that sort of, to really just remind us that we don't have to necessarily be in New York to be thinking about superheroes. Tom Taylor's a bit of a Renaissance man. His uh, animated series The Deep is up for a BAFTA award i'm not sure if that's if that's already come out today i i did see that it was up for a bafta and i mean the deep is a great example because of course the deep started as a comic book published by gestalt which is that western australian publisher tom still lives here in melbourne uh wolfgang is still based in part and it just shows you can have a global impact uh right here in Australia. For So as any aspiring writers or artists or people looking to break into the comic book industry, I think that panel really kind of provides some great inspirational examples of that. The Superheroes Beyond Conference is coming up on the 6th of December. Mm. And also what's tied into that is uh, we're having a exhibition. So this will run for the better part of four months. It's a free exhibition. It'll be in Gallery 2 at Acme. It's uh, called Cleverman. So it's all around the ABC superhero show about the indigenous Australian superhero Cleverman that began in 2016. And now it's not only a TV show, but it's also a comic book, again, published by Wolfgang. And so that's a free exhibition where people get to see props and costumes and, you know, some of the, the concept art and some interesting uh, behind-the-scenes footage from that uh, really groundbreaking show. So that will also open on the 6th of December so people can come to the conference and go see that show as well, which will run free 
uh, could drop in at any time for about uh, four months. And we'll have a Cleverman panel with the show's writer and creator, Ryan Griffin, on Thursday night. Cleverman's really... Uh, not to, I'm not going to say it's clever because it is, but the the thing about it is that this is an adult Australian superhero show. Traditionally, we've done really well with Australian television shows with children's genre shows. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there has been this sort of resistance, I think, in the past in Australia to have superheroes. Uh, maybe it's a little bit of superheroes don't necessarily tally that well with Australian national identity, which tends to be more about you know, the outdoors, or perhaps, or, and particularly the bush. Or also there's a certain amount of cultural cringe, I think, has held Australia back, where a lot of Australian actors like Jackman and, and Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie can play superheroes in America. There seems to have been this sort of... Uh, reluctance to kind of create local heroes and clever man truth's careful blend of indigenous mythology and superhero genre conventions sort of gives us the first unambiguously australian superhero and so the kind of the the exhibition celebrates that but it's very much in keeping with our larger team of thinking beyond the obvious when we think about superheroes and recognizing them not as they once were american icons but really global character types uh, do you have anything about um, uh, some of the uh, the Pacific um, cultures, superheroes? I- I'm thinking of um, uh, ones from Thailand and Indonesia. Every every country seems to have had its um, own particular superhero. We have lots of panels on superheroes around the world. We have two dedicated panels on superheroes from the Philippines alone. We look at uh, superheroes at a mythological level, so looking at some of the predecessors or antecedents, which include some of those kind of Pacific Island sort of uh, archetypes, everything from kind of you know Maui and stuff like that. So we're really taking a sort of a, a global lens when we think about superheroes. Yeah, so I've been um, I've been watched a few um, uh, Indian superhero shows, uh, and also of course um, uh, the Burka Avenger from Pakistan. Yes. And, uh, you know, definitely uh, those examples will be kind of brought up to the fore at you know, various times. So we have, for instance, uh, a panel called or a presentation about Pakistani superheroes and beyond, tales from an emerging comic industry. So about the emerging comic book industry there and their sort of engagement with the superhero archetype, uh, characters, you know, from, from Korea. Uh, and the kind of the, the politics that sometimes is bound up with the characters uh, from Korea. Uh, we so we have a whole range of superheroes from from right around the world. You know, just listing off some other ones that kind of speak to that global effort. This one called Superwomen of the Slums that look at the uh, political underclass in, uh, in in the Philippines, and just a whole range of thinking about how superheroes are used in a way to sort of articulate wider concerns, anxieties, uh, and really reflect, uh, even though it's a global archetype, uh, local culture, local interests, local traditions, mythology, and politics. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it sounds like a very deep, um, a deep and, uh, and wide-ranging exposition about uh, superheroes beyond the ones that we're all familiar with now. So it's, it's, for me, it's like superheroes plus. Oh, and I just got online and uh, I checked on the BAFTA award for the deep. Unfortunately, they got pipped at the post by another 
aquatic hero SpongeBob SquarePants. Oh, he's always <laughs> that SpongeBob. Uh, I mean, something I, w- I would like to point out because you know it is this wide-ranging event that there is a lot of different ways that people can attend. So there is a larger conference, but if people are more interested in coming along to just those individual events, we have a lot of uh, you know tickets you can buy just to go to the Australian Creators Panel or just to go to In Conversation with Trader Roberts. So if you're enthusiastic enough, you want to come to the full three days, we'd love to have you. But there are also those individual one-off events that people can attend as well. Uh, Liam, I'm, I'm wondering, is there a, is there a costume uh, party as well? Well, there's no dedicated costume party, but costumes are always encouraged when it comes to superheroes. Whether, you know, you just want to come in your favorite Marvel t-shirt or if you want to go the, 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 the full journey, we will, t- we will take cosplayers. And we suspect that we will have a few cosplayers. There's nothing quite like presenting to a room and seeing a few Batman in there and a few Wonder Women. It certainly uh, enlivens things a little bit. Oh, <laughs> I actually got a, a really simple one. I, have, I actually have uh, the Mandarin's Ten Rings. So easy to do. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's subtle. I don't know if we'd see it from the podium, but uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's, it's kind of a, it's another great example. And I mean, to kind of close down the, the, the conference, we're reading about superheroes and identity. So the last panel will feature Trina Robbins, who, of course, is that sort of you know figure in the underground comic book scene and can talk about women in comics. Sheena Howard as you described already, the first woman of colour to win the Eisner. We have Keelan Moore, who's an indigenous cosplayer who takes characters like Captain Boomerang and cosplays as them to kind of reclaim them as Australian characters. And Brian Tilly, who's a kind of an actor and writer and has, is part of a theatre group that uh, has people with kind of mental and learning difficulties, and they've done superhero presentations as well. So really it's thinking about superheroes as sort of a mirror or sort of a barometer for the age and how they reflect back to us or help us work through uh, certain uh, anxieties, certain concerns, uh, and really can uh, be more than just the escapist figures that they're often dismissed as. Oh, sounds very worthy. It's the Superheroes Beyond Conference. It's at uh, the Australian Centre for the Moving Image, starting on the 6th, running through to the 8th of December and varying prices, all available that you can find out at um, ACME's website. All right, now, thank you very much, Liam, for having a chat with us today, and good luck with the conference. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye. Well, that's very informative. My gosh, he had all of the information right at his fingertips. Quite impressed there. Mm, I I know. Super memory, obviously. sit back and relax. (laughs) Super memory is Liam's um, skill. I think... You know, conferences like this really start to, you know, try to get people more into the mindset that there's a lot of layers, there's a lot going on with superhero stuff and not to dismiss it so easily. And I think it is a really great platform for a bit of exposure for some of the lesser known international Mm. superheroes and other folklore and sounds really cool. Yeah. Alrighty, uh, now we'll... I almost said that like Jim Carrey. Alrighty! <laughs> Not quite. It's a little piratey as well. <laughs> yeah. Alright, uh, we will have a, a track here. Again, we're um, still uh, um, marking the passing of Nicholas Rogue, the director, the man who fell to earth and also walkabout as well as a number of other influential movies he did don't look now which mm. is uh horrifying so if you've seen that and it really just shifts gears towards the end <laughs> and uh yeah I, I still have vivid memories so it's a very good film though so you know what you actually out. have the advantage of me on that one you haven't seen it no <gasps> okay well i'm not going to say anything else you should definitely watch it mm-hmm. um 
And I've got some interesting facts about it once you've watched it, so okay. you can report back. So we're going to play uh, Space Capsule here from The Man Who Fell to Earth by John Phillips. We're all a little evil inside, but that's okay. This is Philip Tafts, author of The Evil Inside, on the Evilly Good Zero G, on 3RRR FM. There, we have it. A track from The Man Who Fell to Earth, John Phillips, Mm -hmm. the actual soundtrack. So that's our Bowie connection for today. Always got to have one. Mm. Uh, Yes, as we were saying, the uh, certain elements in today's show are informed by the fact that uh, William Goldman (coughs) has passed away. Yes. Nicholas Rogue as well. Um, Very, very sad. And William Goldman, of course, um, was the great US American novelist, playwright, large and small screenwriter, um, born in 1931 and died on November the 16th. Um, Apart from a stint in the US Army where he was a typist at the Pentagon. Ooh, that's cool. (laughs) Well, especially since he did um, All the President's Men. Later. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, you know, <laughs> um, he's be- got the chops. Beyond everything else, uh, he wrote some great non-fiction books about the business. Mm-hmm. Uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade in 1983, its sequel, Which Lie Did I Tell? And also uh, a collection of essays called The Big Picture, Who Killed Hollywood? Uh, he also wrote a book about theatre on Broadway too. Cool. All very, very influential yes. and educational. Remain very good resources. And extremely controversial too in the case of the theatre book too. Oh, how come? Uh, <clears throat> there's um, a chapter that uh, reads very homophobic, to be honest. Mm, that's really which is, disappointing. It's very disappointing, but... Um, there you go. Uh, I'm not here to talk about that with him now. Yeah, yeah but can't no. break that one down too much. Um, also, a, a great novelist, and of course, you will know the novel that he wrote, The Princess Bride, in 1973, um, which is all tied up with the the movie. Looking at some of Goldman's films: Masquerade, Harper, um, Butch Cassidy, and the Sundance Kid, indulging in his passion for the, mm. that particular western. Uh, anti-hero um, or anti-heroes uh, he worked a lot with um, Robert Redford in his movies um, The Hot Rock and The Great Waldo Pepper um, Waldo Pepper is one of my favourite films <laughs> um, he also was the one behind um, adapting Ira Levin's novel The Stepford Wives to the first um, oh, wow. uh, adaptation of that and, of course, sent us all screaming away from the dentist with Marathon Man in 1976. <laughs> and the, um, all the President's Men adapted from Bernstein and Woodward's um, expose of uh, the Nixon, the Watergate break-ins. Yes. Uh, a Bridge Too Far, which was actually a, a good description of the... Um, <laughs> the, the task of uh, adapting uh, Cornelius Ryan's book about um, Operation Market Garden in World War Two. It's a big, lumbering epic yeah. of a film, but it's got its moments. It's also got so many stars in it, and I think Robert Redford once again from memory. <laughs> uh, the Princess Bride in 1987, just one of the all-time great movies. Yeah. I mean, that's a classic. I think in some ways, in terms of, you know, it has a lot of nostalgia for people. Uh, I think if you watch it now for the first time, you might have a different feeling about it, but definite classic. Mm. I don't think anyone's arguing with that. Yeah. And Twins. 
Oh, did he do that? He did that, yeah, yeah. Gosh, he's got an eclectic back catalogue. A lot of Stephen King. (gasps) Uh, Misery. Did, he? Did the screenplay for well, that? I clearly don't know his repertoire very well, do I? Dolores Claiborne, yeah, um, nice. Hearts in Atlantis, Dreamcatcher, and Wildcard. Oh, sorry, no, Wildcard's based on um, Goldman's own novel. Wow, Misery, another classic. There's a kind of a sequel to The Princess Bride, um, spiritually, really, it's at the production team, you know, from the production team that brought you uh, Year of the Comet in 1992, which is about a, uh, a quest for a valuable um, magnum of champagne. Actually, it's bigger <laughs> than a magnum. It's a huge, huge bottle. Uh, he also did the screenplay for Chaplin. Oh, wow. Yeah, Robert Downey Jr. and uh, Attenborough. Uh, Indecent Proposal and Last Action Hero. He did passes over the scripts for those, which he's uncredited for. Maverick. Oh. Um, God, we've got a little bit of a Western vibe going yeah. on today too, don't we? Fierce Creatures, Goodwill Hunting, The General's Daughter. And another one of my absolute favourites, The Ghost and the Darkness, which mm. is based upon the true story of the Lions of Savo. Just um, an amazing story that one, and I, and I really loved the movie. He's got just as many unproduced screenplays. It would have been awesome too. Uh, he worked on uh, Flowers for Algernon, which became uh, Charlie um, Papillon. He had a, an adaptation of that, and these are kind of like could have been ones. Yeah. Um, oh, I would have loved to have seen this. Uh, the Sea Kings in 1970, um, which was going to be part of a, a free picture deal that he was going to do, where he wrote the part of Blackbeard for Sean Connery. <laughs> and also Richard Lester was going to direct it at one stage and R- Roger Moore were also thought about for it. Oh, my God, a pirate movie with Sean Connery. Uh, he did an adaptation of The Right Stuff. Ah. That um, didn't get used either. I know this sounds strange, but um, I just would love to have seen these. Uh, a comedy called Low Fives, a basketball sports film, which was going to have John Cleese and Danny DeVito Ooh. starring in it. That's uh, uh, random, but yes. I'm, I'm here for it. Less random, Shazam, uh, an adaptation of the DC Captain wow. Marvel comic book. Okay. William Goldman doing a superhero movie and Mission Impossible 2, a script that didn't get used for that. Uh, about 15 or so novels um, and also he sometimes worked with his brother on plays and other works, James Goldman, who passed away in 1998 and who just happened to write the, uh, the play for The Lion in Winter and did the screenplay oh. and Robin and Marion screenplay for that in 1976. Two of the absolute finest motion pictures ever, you know, and pretty damn good play too, actually. Yeah. So, you know, between them, the Goldmans accounted for a hell of a lot of absolutely terrific cinema. Uh, I'm going to play a track here from The Ghost in the Darkness, and uh, this is, I think, the main title theme composed by Jerry Goldsmith. And that's another thing about... um, um, Goldman, he worked with so many of these great composers, mm. um, Goldsmith, John Barry, Mancini, Burt Bacharach, you know, <laughs> hats off to him. Yeah, and this is one of those ones where I actually, because most of these films are some of my favourite mo- motion pictures and um, I just sort of doff my uh, my fedora mm. in, in tribute. An incredible career. Yeah, as a great man passes. I'm Scott Westerfeld, author of Peeps and the series Leviathan, and you're listening to Zero G on 3 Triple R FM. Okay, here we are with Zero G in our 
second half hour mm. of the day. That's and yeah, Jerry Goldsmith there with the ghost and the darkness. And thanks to Dr. Liam Burke for telling us about the mm. superhero, beyond superheroes. Symposium. I, I like that word. Super mm. Symposium at the Acme. Although, don't Google Acme with an E and put superheroes because it'll take you to all sorts of splendid places. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Now, um, we're looking at another superhero, a superheroine, the Doctor, with um, the latest Doctor Who episode. This is last week, sorry, not the latest. Mm-hmm. We, we tend to review these ones um, one week after they've aired, which gives people a chance to um, have watched it in any of the different ways that they want to watch it. This one was actually presaged by a bit of a trailer at the um, Children in Need huh. charity do this year. So... It's called Kablam, mm. and the title is everything. And it is very timely too. I think uh, with Black Friday and Sale Weekend, I think uh, I was watching it and I was like, "Oh well, this is a bit uh, very clever timing." I thought. Although, did you hear that Amazon um, played the next Doctor Who accidentally episode? Because I, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I didn't see the episode though. <laughs> Okay, so it's the seventh episode of the 11th season of A Doctor Who, and uh, it's written by Peter McTie and directed by Jennifer uh, Perrot, and came out last week. Now, I actually thought we, we said um, Jennifer had directed um, the uh, Saranga Conundrum, and we said, she's an Australian director, we should find out more about her, and I have, and she's done episodes of Gentleman Jack. Uh, Newton's Law, Home and Away. Oh, there you go. Everybody's got to cut their teeth. Yeah, Offspring and Echo Beach, and a series called Doctors. Cool. And Peter McTie is a British screenwriter, but also has got the Australian connections. Um, uh, writing Wentworth, mm-hmm. the um, the Prisoner sort of reboot, and also um, Glitch. Mm, yep. Mm-hmm. Neighbours, Nowhere Boys, and the Doctor Blake mysteries. And uh, he actually just netted five Australian Writers Guild Award nominations for his work. Wow. So there you go. We've got a very Australian connection here. That's um, great. Which probably means that if we buy stuff online, they won't charge us international fees anymore, right? <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, this story do- actually does reference that. Uh, Kablam is the name of an interstellar well, we'll call it online trading company mm. that will send you all sorts of things with a cheerful robot carrying a magic box. Yes. And it does actually infiltrate the magic box of the TARDIS in order to make a delivery to the Doctor. And it was a fez, which means so much to us older Doctor Who fans. I was going to say, I was like, <laughs> that is, uh, that's relevant somehow. Oh, but yeah. I'm not exactly, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it was actually not that long ago, though. Um, uh, Matt Smith's Doctor had it wore fezzes. Fezzes are cool, he used to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm, I don't even know if it was the same fez. Ooh, it, that'd it, be cool. It no, it must have been a new fez. I think it would be new. Yeah. But it does raise the question of how did this... Um, company breached the shields of the TARDIS, which have handled Dalek war fleets flowing, throwing energy at them. Maybe the Doctor g- gives them a Access. pass. Well, because she was very excited to see yeah. the delivery man, yeah. so... She, so she just lets it through. So she just sort of... Uh, she must have some kind of well, written in that they're allowed. Uh, yeah, that's a pretty um, interesting sort of development. All right, uh, so anyway, once they get a um, an online 
package from Kablam, they find a distress message written on the packing slip mm. and thereby hangs a tale where they go off to the Kablam world with the giant warehouse and dispatch area, you know, um, marketing, uh, fulfilment, dispatch, package, the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they are obviously uh, riffing off Amazon and rather other large online retailers. Yeah, and I think it reminded me a little bit of, like, there's a Dave Vegas book called The Circle. There's elements of that kind of, um, you oh. know, how far does this kind of online conglomerate go and, you know, all that kind of thing. Clearly all the way in this case because there is a, a cunning plan afoot. Uh, it's a heavily robotized environment. In fact, they only have 10% of humans living, living and working there. And uh, so it gives us a chance to explore some of those um, tropes and paradigms involved with that. Although the way it ends up is, I don't know, are they supporting this whole company or what? <laughs> I mean, it was a very <laughs> convenient uh, conclusion, yeah. I felt. And I felt a bit unrealistic, but sure. I mean, if that's the direction we're going in, that's fine. I'll go with that. Once again, Graham's experience (laughs) (laughs) proved incredibly useful this time as a janitor. Oh, that's right. But he was like pivotal in kind of infiltrating and getting some information. And and Ryan was as well. He'd he'd actually worked in something like an Amazon on Earth, so he knew all the moves. Uh, Yasmin, not so much, although... She does get to show off how to do a, uh, a, a restraining hold. Yeah, I was going to say, she does get a, a bit more active. As a police. So that was, yeah. yeah. So, um, and there's some, actually some comedian, there's a comedian in there, one of the uh, the actors is a fairly well-known British comedian who has appeared on um, QI in the oh. panels there and, and so on, but um, that, that all sort of passed me by a little bit. Um, and I thought the best thing about this episode Best of all was that they made bubble wrap a weapon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I liked that. I thought that was quite cute. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, I think all in all, every all the little details, it was like, oh yeah. Doctor Who has a as a uh, a history of meddling with corporate um, Mm. level sorts of stuff. Mm. Uh, It's one of the many traditional foes of the Doctor. Uh, anything involving robots can also be a difficulty as well. But I actually thought the twist they put on that was really good. I agree, yeah. Uh, and I also love the fact that um, every time I'm watching Jodie Whittaker playing the Doctor, every time she uses the sonic screwdriver, she's got this ver- very dramatic hold it forward she down. She does. Is that not? Um, no, other Doctors have done that, but she does it. It's her signature move. Yeah. And then when she brings it back to look at it, she always seems surprised that it's actually worked. She uses it like a wand. Like yeah, it's kind of yeah. very, yeah. Oh, oh, and they've hit the shops too. Oh, the, have they? Uh, yeah, the oh. 13th Doctor's Sonic. Have um, you ordered one yet? I've got one at home. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's just the uh, the usual sort of uh, thing, but it, it it actually revolves the end of it, Ooh. just like the one in the Cool, you'll have to bring show. it in. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to bring it in. It doesn't sound all that much different from any of the other Sonics, yeah. except it has a really nice scanning mode. Oh, that's it's cool. Sort of a, well, if I brought it in, you'd know, but no. So we'll do that. One day. Bring that in, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and still, every time she scrunches up her nose and says, you what? I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. 
She's a good character. Yeah, she's she's made the Doctor um, different enough. There's still lots of callbacks to previous episodes. She talks about um, meeting Agatha Christie, mm. which is quite a big episode of one of the oh, previous Doctors. Okay. Mm. Uh, this is all new Who, new Doctor Who stuff, though. Uh, it did remind me of um, a Tom Baker episode, a couple of Tom Baker episodes, actually, a little one with... Um, where he's landed on Pluto and there's a big company there that's taken over mankind's destiny. Mm. Only possibly not as nasty as that <laughs> one. Anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't one of those big feels episodes, did you? No, I think it was just a bit of fun. I also think it was, like I said, it was a timely episode and I think they've done that on purpose. They've just tackled this little idea, done it pretty well. I think all the casting of side characters, like those one episode characters, has been quite good. I don't know if they actually timed it for that. I was thinking that about the other episode that we saw the other week, um, uh, the uh, Demons in the Punjab mm. one. Uh, and there's some World War um, Two stuff in that and I thought that might have been time for Armas to stay mm. but it wasn't. It's just a total coincidence. I mean, and I guess that's it. Like, if all a lot of these issues and things are quite on the zeitgeist then obviously... Um yeah. You know, it's always going to seem like, oh, they've timed that well, but it's like, well, because it's always relevant. Like, I'm these sh- are issues people are talking about. Um, I'm sure they'd be happy <laughs> to think that. It did remind me of a podcast I listened to once that was about the inner workings of Amazon. Mm. And it's called Brown Box, and it's a radio lab episode. It's quite good. And they talk a lot about the scanners and the time that, um, you know, you have to pack the items and find the items and things like that. Like, I think um, a lot of those kinds of details are inspired by the way those companies are actually run. So, mm. Mm. yeah. Good special effects, too, and sets, I thought. I mean, I think the uh, conveyor belt stuff was yeah. a bit naff, but, I mean... Yeah, it was. It looked a little bit too um, staged. Yeah, but yeah. again, like. But the ugh, robots, I loved. The they robots got there were in the, creepy. The robots were great. Yeah, I thought they were really good, and even like the older robot, the original bot. Uh, I think all that was done. Hmm. Done quite well. Hmm. So yeah, I don't think it's a uh, an episode that all, that's going to stand out in Doctor Who history, but it's just workmanlike. I thought. You know, yeah, it was true. a good episode. Enjoyable. Do you pop bubble wrap when you open a? Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> that good big bubble ones, for yeah, sure. Yeah. The little ones, eh. But if they're the big But what bubbles? about the big ones that you get from some of the bookshop um, chains? Oh, that's just like one big yeah, pillow. <laughs> yeah. They're a bit different. Not going to do that anymore. <laughs> I think it was invented by um, Arnold Rimmer, actually, in Red Dwarf Bubble Wrap. Anyway, we'll go off with another track here uh, called Chaplin, and this is John Barry's and Nick Rain's score from the um, movie Chaplin, again in, in honour of the late great William Goldman. Guess who's coming to Dinar? <laughs> I'm Robert Trevor. I play Salmonius, the merchant prince in Hercules, the legendary journeys, and Xena warrior princess. You're listening to 3 FM, the station of the gods. Ah, Zeus! Hey, hey, go easy with that lightning! Sheesh! Ah. <sighs> I feel quite relaxed after that. Chaplin. <laughs> the uh, John Barry score. From like a the... relaxed ride through the American frontier <laughs> where <laughs> not, nothing can go wrong. Yeah. Not, Life's great. Not quite. <laughs> uh, Weird Wild West, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Yes, the surprise drop on Netflix, Coen Brothers, new mm. anthology film. I thought it was a television series. Me too. I think because we discussed it. When I opened it up, I was like, oh, this, is, this isn't this is a TV series. I guess because the anthology format 
Um, they tricked us. Yeah, and I knew there'd be different vignettes. And I did enjoy one thing. I mean, we're not going to spoil it, obviously. No. The, the vignettes are of different length. Um, and overall, it runs about two hours, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's up on Netflix. And it was sort of something they'd been um, working on and they'd been writing the stories and they were approached to turn them into uh, filmed vignettes by Netflix. So, And they did it. I'm not sure how much you can take about the... Uh uh, about the way the production went as gospel because basically this is tall western tales <laughs> I, actually i shouldn't say that um i have the time life history of the old west mm. books there's a lot of stuff in those books that reminds me of this particular sojourn mm. in fact the whole idea of um six shots in the revolving chamber of this anthology movie feels very 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 tall tale-ish you know yeah um, okay, so it's uh, direct, directed, written, and produced by the Cullen brothers. As they do. As yeah. they do. <laughs> um, I, I noticed Joel's name is on top of this one this time around. Joel Cohen directed Ethan Cohen underneath that one. Oh, uh, do they switch that? Yeah, they maybe. Sort of swap around. I sometimes. bet you they have some kind of deal. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, I, I just love this movie. Just yeah. to pieces. And it's so hard to pull off a good anthology movie. Agreed. And I think the tone, the pacing, the, even the order of the vignettes, I think, was perfect. And, um, and speaking of Princess Bride, they do the the um, literal bookends of each episode showing a page from a book and they turn it and there's an illustration. And, and, you, and just that little, um, what do you call it, like the placard, what's the name for the, um, the image, mm-hmm. the little sort of... Um, Gives you a bit of a hint, and you're like, "Oh, when is that going to show up in the yeah, vignette?" Yeah. And you kind of, and it's it's quite well the plates, thought out. The colour plates. Yes, that's yeah. it. I was like, "We're still called a placard," um, and also too, like I think they've put in a lot of little notes, like you know, there's um, a bit of a shootout. There's you know, yeah, I don't know. So a lot of those tropes get worked in into this thing as a whole bit it's, of uh, the dead man's hand in poker like i thought that was cool it's gloriously lensed uh, bruno del bonnell is the guy the cinematographer and um uh, he's worked um harry potter and the half-blood prince and inside llewellyn a few other cullen brother sort of stuff uh but oh my guys shot on um digital too their first the digital first film that they've done yeah and the richness of this even on the home screen is just incredible and they make they really hammer it home too they've got some lush lavish kind of um Emit like landscapes, and then they've got snow. Then you've got you know your sort of typical more rugged desert landscape, and I really think they they make the most of that. It's mostly shot on location, except for the last story, which is all on a soundstage. Well, um, it's weird, wild west. I reckon there's two stories in this at least that would ride down that trail, the trail that leads to the uh, the twilight zone. Um, just to run through them quickly, the, the title story is about a master singing shootist, mm. Buster Scruggs of the title. Uh, he rides into a town and mayhem ensues. That's um, the absurdist kind of... Yeah. He does a lot of direct-to-camera narration and singing. He's a singing cowboy. He's a wonderful actor. That guy's so great. <laughs> yes. Tim Blake Nelson, who we've seen before in Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Mm-hmm. Uh, but also was in, he was in the, um, the Holes movie and he played Dr. Samuel Stern's 
in The Incredible Hulk. Well, So he was going to be the leader there. But we've also seen him in Colossal and uh, Fantastic Four. Well. Sad. <laughs> <laughs> and Clancy Brown shows up in that one too. Mm. Um, there's a, there's a, a guy who was born to be in Western movies. <laughs> um, I thought this was great. Uh, it's uh, trick shooting, exotic ways of um, putting down sidewinders. Yep. Um, it reminded me a lot of the American astronaut or Stingray Sam, if mm. to quote two exotic sort of Westernish things. Um, I love the fact that he's wearing like immaculate white chaps and yep. gear and when he walks into a saloon he pats himself down and leaves a dust outline in the air yeah you know they've paid so much attention to the detail the second one is um uh near al god Godoners? i don't know al gods some place like that anyway it's a place in the west where a desperado robs the wrong bank mm. this one's all about inevitability um, it's not the bank teller's first robbery rodeo either, and so nope. he has a solution to it. <laughs> I quite liked that one. I think I thought it was very a good mix of like quiet and like action. <laughs> mm. Remind me a bit of a uh, Clint Eastwood movie, actually, um, and also the tight spots that they got into. Oh, brother! Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm fatigued of James Franco, but I think he was quite good in this. He's yeah. the, the our main outlaw in this one, and, and not a side of a. Pumpkin bomb in uh, in view. Uh, the meal ticket. Uh, oh, and it also that one has the best line in it, which I can't tell. Oh, you. yeah. The best <laughs> line. Uh, the meal ticket is about a travelling freak show where um, a thespian, a very challenged thespian, mm. um, declaims poetry and plays for coins at mm. uh, wayside stops. That's probably the bleakest story, I reckon. That really got me. I, yeah. Liam Neeson stars in that. He's so good at everything. <laughs> and, and Harry Potter. Uh, sorry, yes, Harry Potter. Harry, Harry Melling from Harry Potter. I was like, who is that guy? And he plays Dudley Dursley and he's grown up and looks vaguely like someone you think you know and then you realise. What a face and what eyes. He did such a lovely job. And those dramatic readings mm. and the fact that, yeah, let's not get too much into it, but that one I think is almost my favourite and least favourite in that it really upset me. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's all filmed in Colorado. Um, and All Gold Canyon with Tom Waits playing a prospector. That was oh, so good. That was He was beautiful. brilliant. Yeah. And it's all... Um, uh, that's what one of those ones where they've got this stunning shot of this amazingly beautiful valley. And you just Maybe think, that was my favourite. I don't know. It was good. Um, they're mining for gold pockets along the riverbank. Um, I actually love the procedural of this. I now mm. feel like I could, uh, and this is absolutely ludicrous, <laughs> I could go along and pan for gold and, uh, and track down a pocket of gold in the riverbank. That's so wonderful to see all of that. And that Waits, was a lovely one. Waits adds to his uh, amazing repertoire of eclectic and eccentric cinematic roles. Um, the Girl Who Got Rattled, or The Gal Who Got Rattled, that's inspired by a story by Stuart Edward White <coughs> and also based upon some of these true Western tales too. Mm. That one, uh, yeah. Again, again, it was. It's. It starts to get a bit. Um, I mean, I think they did a really good job of mixing tones here, and this one, I think, it's sort of got that. Oh, I, can't, I don't know how to describe it without giving too much away, but it's a longer vignette, and I think it sort of tried to really get across some of the irony and tragedy of living in that time. I mm. think, and, and I actually um, think they did nail that. Um, 
It, it seems a bit bizarre, but um, mm. I've read stories like that one that are true stories. And yeah, and I think the structure of, of that is something that's used often um, in, as sort of a plot thing. So I think mm. I think it was done fairly well. There's a dog in it too. It's a cute dog. Yeah. They're, I mean... <laughs> And yeah. that's another, it's another trope yeah. um, about um, people in wagon trains disputing over animals and pets and stuff. Um, usually it doesn't end well for the pets somewhere well, along the Well, I can't imagine that, yeah. <laughs> uh, they actually built the wagon train for that, all 14 wagons, and um, shipped them to uh, Nebraska. Cool. It looked pretty legit. Like, I think that you can tell that. I think they were, and this is a beautiful word, Conestoga wagons they're like prairie schooners Mm. amazing sort of thing it must have been i was going to say it must have been such a hoot to actually do all this to do the western stuff as a film yeah apparently there's a pretty grueling shoot though being outside and i don't think the Coens are going to let you half-ass a performance either when you're out in the desert no uh the final one was the mortal remains Mm. our Uh, piece de resistance set in a uh stagecoach with tyne daly from Cagney and Lacey and also um, Spider-Man Homecoming. Hmm. Uh-huh, yes. Uh, and Brendan Gleeson. Yeah, he's good as everything. Yeah. He's, he's playing an Irishman. I mean, he's playing Brendan Gleeson in this, but sure. And, and an actor, uh, Sol Rubinek, who was uh, Arnie in Warehouse 13, huh. uh, amongst other things. And this is a very tight little story. Not, not a thousand million miles away from um, the Hateful Eight stagecoach scenes. Yeah. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, a lovely little, to me, Twilight Zone sort of story. I also liked that that was how they left the film. Like, that was the yep. end. I think that was, like I said, I think the order of these was perfect. Mm. Um, and that one, I think, you know, I'd gone through, you go through quite a journey with the five before that. Yeah. And in some ways, it is a, a nice, thoughtful note to leave on. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I always like those ensemble discussion bottle you know, yes. contained scenes. And this one is pretty much that. Yeah. So, Overall, um, it flowed so well for me, the whole, the whole anthology. They shifted gear fairly effortlessly between mm-hmm. things. Um, I felt I learnt something about the West that I hadn't known. And I, and I felt, as a genre fan, I felt being particularly well catered for watching this film. Yeah, It's on Netflix. They did it in conjunction with uh, a television um, production house as well. Mm. Um, I would love to see this on the big screen too. Yeah, it'd be lovely. Uh, maybe maybe they'll, uh, be able, they'll be able to work that out some stage. I think Netflix was actually thinking about um, buying cinema chains. Oh, or making its own or something, you know. <laughs> so so they could sort of like get Oscar. Yeah, right. That's interesting. <laughs> There's some Netflix like proprietary stuff that I would want to see on the big screen. Well, you know, Annihilation was actually made for the big screen. Yeah, exactly. So and I still think that and this one, yeah, they so. should have pushed through. Anyway. Maybe they will. Um mm. So what do you think um oh, this is, oh yeah, no, maybe. Yeehaw! Absolutely love this. Yeah, I think it's a real journey and, uh, yeah, I think it's quite special. Hmm. Well, that's about it for Zero G for today. Mm. Um, Time is whipped by. Yes, um, bull whipped by, if you want to go over the Western analogy. Uh, and um, I think that uh, we will talk more about um, Nicholas Rogue's uh, mm. sad passing and his um, body of work uh, on perhaps on next week's show. Yeah, that sounds good. And we're going to go out with another tribute to William Goldman and uh, the track from Princess Bride, Willie Deville here. And, uh, you know, how can you how can you go past this one? And um, Joe Brunetic coming up next with Astral Glamour. 
This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.